Hello, this is Scott Yarbrough. And I'm Kirk Kernut, and welcome to the first episode of Great American Novel. Sometimes it's referred to by the acronym of GAN, G-A-N, and we don't know whether you call it G-A-N or GAN, do we, Kirk? No, it's kind of like GIF or GIF, so we, we are going to go with the preferred pronunciation of GAN just because it's easier to say than G-A-N. And maybe we should go with GIF for the other one because it reminds us of peanut butter. <laughs> Well, what is this podcast about, you may ask? And this is an opportunity for Scott and I, who are big fans of literature, not only teachers of it, but big readers ourselves, to talk about this tremendously complex and convoluted concept of the great American novel, both its history and its controversy. So Scott, we can't talk about great American novels without really talking about what's at issue behind it which is the issue of canonicity or what novels are deemed worthy of surviving their initial period of being read and entering the marketplace. So let me ask you a simple question. What is the literary canon and who decides what goes in it? So the term canon is borrowed from church uh, theology and doctrine, and that's the notion of all the things in the church that are considered to be true that most people in that particular denomination or group agree that, yes, this is orthodox and this is doctrinaire. And so in literary terms, it means over time, certain entitled folks, uh, whether they're editors or writers or scholars or professors or teachers or students or writers or scholars in general, have all decided these things are worthy of retaining and worthy of being read, worthy of being studied and spoken about. But as you say, there are problems with this because, for example, they always reflect a given culture at a given time. So, for example, if you're looking for great African-American writers before the Civil War era, you don't have a whole lot of choices to deal with because everything in the culture was set up to not let there be many African-American writers before the Civil War era. And a few that we have a few very important ones, such as Frederick Douglass or Phyllis Wheatley or Harriet Jacobs is pretty important because of how everything works. So it always reflects a culture at a given time, which makes it, you know, there are many difficulties in deciding what should be in the canon, what shouldn't be in the canon, and are there other issues with how political the canon is? Yeah, I think that's a great explanation. Uh, one way of thinking of the problems of canon formation is there's always an inherent sort of friction between the particular and the universal. And I think you and I went through undergraduate education at a time where the idea of universals was giving way to the teaching of very specific particulars. We were both raised under the orthodoxy of always historicized, right. which is a term from Frederick Jameson that insists on not taking any sort of synoptic or outer position on things. And that was a shock to me because I had gone through a high school education that said literature was about three things. It was about man versus nature, man versus man, or man versus himself. And it all seemed so easy when you had three categories only. <laughs> Struggle that people face in talking about canons and whether books are worthy of surviving time is the issue of is a canon inherently conservative? And I think it is. I think the notion of a canon is preservation. It's often tied to a sense of quality, or at least traditionally has been. What is the best? What is the greatest? 
what is the most worthy of preserving. So when we think of literature, we don't even to, we even have to make a distinction in many cases between what is literature and what is fiction or what is popular reading and what is right. deemed worthy of preservation. So I think that's part of the issue that a lot of people have with canons is the idea that things endure, but they don't endure for objective reasons. There's always subjective motives. And it's and it's not only a literature problem as well. You, you run into it in music. Sure. You know, Michael Jackson sold way more records than John Coltrane did. And I might and do regard that as a crime. Yet at the same time, that is an aesthetic judgment on my part, right. showing, you know, my, my dislike of super popular American pop music compared to, say, uh, cool jazz and, and the kind of free jazz Coltrane moved into in the 50s and early 60s. 60s. Your mention of that particular pop performer also brings up the question of who is establishing the canon, because for folks who study the canon of rock and roll that we think of, which tends to privilege white male auteurs, songwriters, that's in part because many of the critics who emerged in the mid-60s were white males, and they tended to look for in the art reflections of their own values, presuming that their values were the ones that were worth preserving. Right. I, I guess I would ask you, Scott, do you see yourself as a canon preserver or a canon buster? Is it possible to be C, all of the above? Yeah, I think that's where I would put myself. Yeah, because on the one hand, I think there is a tendency, and again, I, I approach this from a bit of a, a professor's point of view and a, a reader's point of view, there's a tendency for everyone to take the path of least resistance. And so a very formulaic science fiction novel or fantasy novel or detective novel is very familiar. It's very safe. It doesn't challenge you. You get to return to the same tropes you love over and over again, see the same characterization and ideas over and over again. But ultimately, it gets to be maybe a little stay it a little safe in its way and it really writers are somewhat trapped in the walls of that formula if they're not willing to you know break out a little bit on the other hand because of the complexity of some works that are promoted into the canon such as Moby Dick by Herman Melville or Absalom Absalom by William Faulkner or Beloved by Toni Morrison none of those are to a journeyman reader an easy walk in the park they're all challenging in different ways. And so what I think is we need to hold on to those important canon books like Moby Dick and Absalom, Absalom and Beloved, but we need to add to it. We need to broaden it and make sure it's inclusive and also make sure that we are reading it in a way that welcomes newcomers to the stage instead of says, no, the stage is only for these for people who paid their dues from this certain time, place, or class. Just out of curiosity, and I'm throwing this loop at you because it's not in the script, but okay. think about uh, one of the most famous canon images comes from T.S. Eliot's uh, tradition in the individual talent. And I'm wondering if you think of that when you were talking about that particular model, if you think of his argument in there, is that still a viable model for us? I think it can be because, for example, do you have the hard-boiled literature of the 30s and 40s if you don't first have the literary writer Ernest Hemingway and the detective writer Dashiell Hammett? Clearly, everyone who's writing detective fiction from that time period is using those two guys as aesthetic touchstones and certainly, and even plot touchstones where Hammett's concerned. At the same time, one of the things we value about 
art is when it's innovative or new. And so I'm not exactly sure what tradition Thomas Pynchon is making use of when he launches out with Gravity's Rainbow. He seems to be moving into a whole new territory in some ways. We could probably point to some postmodernist progenitors, but he's he's pretty much the guy who sets the, the curve on, on that particular roller coaster loop. You mentioned a minute ago about us both being professors and university literature teachers. So I think we need to also talk about the history of the canon makers and go back to the idea that that has shifted significantly in the past, uh, really in the past 40 years. If you go back to the 19th century, the canon was formulated by public intellectuals like William Dean Howells or the writer that we'll talk about in a minute, J.W. DeForest. And it was done so because the study of literature at that time was not what we think of as being explication or interpretation or analysis. It was all philological, which means it was about linguistics. So you were studying language. And that's one of the reasons that you know, back in the day in a classical education, you had this right. study of Greek and, and Old English was emphasized. That was literature with a capital L. It really wasn't until the early 20th century that the idea of a canon of contemporary literature even became broadly acceptable. And along with that came the idea in American universities that American literature could have its own tradition because we were dealing with literature of uh, only 40 or 50 years, less than 100 years, really. And it's funny because you have this brand new field and people are trying to make it something worthy of studying, maybe taking the, the way that Greek had been studied and, and Latin had been studied and trying to adapt it into a living language where everyone's still speaking and working in it. And, and somehow it was seen from the very start as, or, or I should say from the early, late 1800s to early 1900s, as the American university became what it would become, that it, English should be studied and it should be about studying literature as well as philology. But the notion of what is it written by Americans that's worthy of study was one of the hurdles they had to leap at that time as well. So when we think about that, we even have that term, the great American novel and where it starts and where it comes from. And you sent me an interesting link to an interesting writer named J.W. DeForest. He is generally credited with defining this term, although interestingly enough, if you research into it, and one of the books that we are relying upon in this discussion is by a few years ago by Lawrence Buell called The Dream of the Great American Novel. And he makes a great point that I was not familiar with before I read it that P.T. Barnum was actually one of the first people to use the term great American novel. So, you know, it <laughs> comes out of a history of hype, shall we say. But DeForest's point, and he kind of treats it as a term of derision at the same time he holds it up. Right. But I think the idea was that you're only three years, less than three years after the Civil War, and the notion of an Americanness that can unify the country from coast to coast, west to east, north to south, and define a common identity was very important. And his question was, what 
do we have any works that fall into this category right now? And he makes an interesting point that Nathaniel Hawthorne, that most people think of as right. immediately being probably the first canonical American writer. Melville famously sold him as the American Shakespeare. And it wasn't too long after DeForest that Henry James right. made a similar case. But he claimed that The Scarlet Letter was not a great American novel. Right. And there was a very specific reason for that was because it was came too much out of the tradition of the Romanticism, where it did not connect with, quote unquote, real life. And so for the readers who don't know exactly what we mean by Romanticism, there's kind of two levels of it you can think of. One is the uh, humankind's interaction with nature to understand the meaning of life and the universe and all of that. So you think of William Wordsworth, the lines composed above Tenor and Abbey, or in the American tradition, it's what the transcendentalism of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau also come out of, uh, and reaching a kind of poetic apotheosis, I think, in Whitman's uh, Leaves of Grass. And then, uh, but also in fiction, it often means larger than life characters and the man's hubris going up against the powers of God and nature. And so your, your great fictional example in the British tradition might be Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And then you really do see a lot of Mary Shelley showing up, I think in Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he is definitely mm -hmm. operating in that romanticist way in the same way that I think probably Herman Melville is as well. And so DeForest first suggestion for the book that fits so it's a little complicated and that's uncle tom's cabin very much so i mean i think most people when they read the forest think that even by 1868 that most serious critics and i use that word with scare quotes around it probably had kicked uncle tom's cabin to the curb because it was so associated with theaters and melodrama and the jumping from ice flow to ice flow i think he brings it up and recognizes what will become a long tradition right. of harping on its faults but he brings it up for a very specific reason because it is it is about a political issue divisive the defining political issue of that particular Era. And so in dealing with the consequences of slavery, Stowe is credited with creating the first great American novel that is dealing with a social problem. And that, that becomes kind of a leaping off point for people to sort of, it's, it's almost like a transitional mark between the particular and the universal. And so we end up running up against some of the characteristics of what we're talking about with the, the great American novel, because on the one hand, if we're looking at artistic value and aesthetics and whether it's not written according to formula, it's gets difficult to argue for uncle Tom's cabin. But on the other hand, we're talking about significant theme and tackling an American subject and having an important thing to talk about then it's clearly got a lot going on for it. And DeForest is very confusing about where we should stand on the divide between Romanticism and the style that was emerging in the 1860s, which is the realism that we associate with William Dean Howells and Henry James, and that would become the dominant form that really never went away. It's still, you right. know, most novels today are realistic novels. But I think that part of the problem right. with that is there's a couple different types of realism. There's the literary realism, which is about a kind of diagnosing of 
social ills, be it class. Right. Dealing with societal problems and not avoiding them. Right. That That's a more documentary kind. And it's kind of attributed to, it, to uh, the French writer Zola. And I think American realists always wanted to distinguish themselves from that, what we might later call muckraking tradition. And instead to have a more aesthetic realism, which is the absolute fidelity to recording the world in the way that it is, which itself would become problematic because it later gets accused of being erudite and elitist and not in touch with the common person. So all of these definitions have their pros and cons and, and like trying to navigate labyrinths. I think most of us end up trying to sniff the cheese uh, out of our way of, of getting through these roadblocks. Right. And particularly when we take that super documentary realism and we add a little Darwinism to it, which was the kind of big new literary fad in the last half of the 19th century and early 20th century. And we, we redefine it as naturalism at that point where it's all about scientific determinism and how your heredity and your environment determine your your fate in the world. And that becomes, you know, the dominant mode in the early American, early 20th century American writing. And of course, at that point, they all are looking down on the notion of the great American novel. One of the things that'll come through in this conversation is we crave the concept of the great American novel so we can disabuse ourselves that it exists. (laughs) It's almost like we need to believe in something larger in order to believe that it doesn't have any effect on us. (laughs) Let me ask you this, Scott. Give me an example of a writer who was considered canonical in the 19th century who fell out of the canon And then give me an example of a writer who has only been recently rehabilitated and and made canonical. So if you're thinking about writers who are both very popular and very well respected at the time that Hawthorne is writing, one of his biggest competitors would be the Charleston, South Carolina writer, William Gilmore Sims. But Sims was definitely on the wrong side of history. He was Uh, very much loyal to the Confederate States during the Civil War. He wrote a lot of, uh, as as the nation got more and more heated over talks of abolition and slavery, he wrote more and more pro-slavery tracts. And as a result of both being in the wrong and on the losing side of the war, it didn't take long for his works to quit being studied, to not quit being read, to quit staying in print. And although you might study him in a Southern Studies class these days, you'll never find him in most typical American lit anthologies or on most typical American lit syllabi. And as you mentioned earlier, those are where a lot of places where the canon is preserved and, and put forward. On the other hand, in the 1899 novel, The Awakening by Kate Chopin, we would now refer to as a seminal document of feminist literature and incredibly important part of the American canon but it appeared with a brief splash, did not get very favorable reviews because a lot of reviewers thought she made American women and housewives look bad. And she kind of disappeared for a long time until the rise of, of second and third wave feminism, 60s and 70s, brought the book back into, into consciousness and sh- it started showing up again in more and more classrooms and more and more anthologies. And now she's a staple on every American literature syllabi in the country and so that it's unthinkable you would teach a class in 
focusing on 20th century American lit or turn to century American lit, not have some works by her there. But it's really the canon was elastic enough to both remove him and bring Chopin into it. I think a lot of what you see in canon formation over the past 50, 60 years is really redressing balances in order to give equal representation to important voices and make sure absolutely that in this idea of what is American, that, that we have a representative swath of different people. You know, the other class example after Kate Chopin was uh, Zora Neale Hurston. Sure. I always think about going to local bookstores. There's always a table full of stuff there that is taught in high school. So parents can buy, find the books for the summer reading lists. And it's always the awakening and it's always their eyes were watching God. And in both of those cases, I think uh, a lot of times readers are shocked to discover that if they were in school 50 years ago, you wouldn't be reading those writers. And of course, their eyes are watching God, which I think at some point we'll get to over this podcast series, is even more complicated because it was actually Richard Wright who blocked her from the canon for so long. And and it just shows, given his place of prominence at that point in the the Harlem Renaissance and in the um, African-American editing and writing community. So it shows you that there are a lot of ways which this canon is problematic and elastic. And some of those ways might be good, which is we can retrofit you in. But I'm sure Zora Neale Hurston would have liked to have been appreciated during her lifetime. And I'm sure that in the afterlife, people who have fallen out like Sims or Theodore Dreiser are pretty ticked off that they <laughs> are effectively excluded, that, it, that they're kind of historical footnotes in a lot of ways. Right. So it works both ways. Well, let's do this. Let's take this term, great American novel, and let's break down the pros and cons of all three of those categories to talk about the way the concept has come to be defined. So when we talk about great, what do we mean? I think on the one hand, we are taking what some might claim to be a little bit of an elitist approach in that we mean it is a significant work of literary art. We are privileged enough and educated enough to be able to join the long chorus of people who've made this declaration. Most of these books, you know, we're not the ones who are putting them in the, in the canon. These are things that other people over many years have decided they should be in. And, and most of them, I think we probably agree with the collective judgment. But of course, the minute you get into a subjective judgment of aesthetics, like you said, there's problems. Maybe, I think some people would probably say there needs to be scope, either in terms of simply, is it a doorstop book? You know, does it weigh more than seven ounces or a pound, you know, and is it big? Or at least thematically, is it big? Even if it's a fairly slim volume, is it dealing with big American themes? So I think both from a scope of work, a depth of work, and from an aesthetic valuation This is what people mean when they say great. And I think for both those reasons, it may be the most controversial of the three terms because it implies a sort of prejudice. Sure. It implies a sort of ambition, first and foremost. Nobody sits down and writes a great American novel that is, it comes fraught with all kinds of kinds of desires to accomplish something more than just 
finishing the book. And, you know, Moby Dick is a classic example of that. Herman, Mel Herman Melville, who could have spent her career profitably rehashing his adventures yeah. on different, different sailing ships, um, you know, wanted to reinvent himself as a kind of polymath intellectual and to synthesize whole traditions of literature. So the ambition gets fed into the idea of it being a doorstop. And that's a great term because we think of great American novels by definition as having to be big. One of the most famous great American novels, probably the smallest one, is The Great Gatsby. Right. And that length worked against him when he originally published it. It was not taken as seriously, perhaps, as it deserves because it was considered a small book. H.L. Mencken called it a glorified anecdote. But don't you, Kirk, every time you read a 500-page novel that's aiming for great American status... Don't you want to mail them a copy of The Great Gatsby and say, you could lose 200 pages of your book and it's not going to hurt anything? There's been many a uh, contender for the great American novel that has found, uh, especially in the age of shrinking attention spans, found it very difficult to pull off a big book like that. There are very few novels that need to be more than 500 pages. I'll be very honest with you. So it, it does work both ways. Let's take the term American. We might think that that should be the most controversial because it brings up all kinds of cultural culture wars, questions of, of, of what it means to be American. But in some ways, it's the least controversial term as I see it. I would agree with you. I, I tend to be very inclusive. And I think my definition, I, I start with, I do it in two different ways in my American Lit classes. I look at who we are now and I say, well, us and going back, <laughs> anyone who's ever been American. And also anyone who wants to be American. And so if you're a, an immigrant from Chile and you've, you've come to these shores and you're, you're looking for, to be part of this, this great whirling uh, spinning top and mess we call lovingly the United States of America, then welcome aboard. And, and so I take a very inclusive point of view on it. Now, I, I do typically try to think of things that are purposely working to be part of a tradition as opposed to not working to be part of a tradition. So there are certain things some people might might cover or study that I would say that is a great thing to study, but it's really belongs in a folklore tradition or an anthropology tradition or a history class or a cultural studies class. Uh, it's not really part of, of the literary studies area, but even that notion of what is literary studies versus what is cultural studies has become so polymorphous in the academy that you tend to not even want to draw lines there. But I tend not to put a whole lot of of sweat into it because I don't try to really exclude anyone from it. And I think just the very invocation of American tends to, from the outside, think that we are celebrating Americanness. But by and large, most contenders for the great American novel have historically been critiquing reigning concepts of, of what that means. So obviously in a novel like uh, Toni Morrison's Beloved, you know, you are, you are critiquing the very idea of um, uh, the concept of an American as a, you know, as a free society or democracy because we're dealing right. with the consequences of slavery. Or if you're dealing with grapes of wrath, you're dealing with the idea of uh, capitalism as being right. inherently uh, aiding the as as the perfect economic system to fulfill our individuality. It's rare to find 
a Whitman-esque great American novel that sings the praises of America. It's more often a critique of whatever people at that particular time are saying is America. And it's connected to the idea of maybe the most inherent American concept, which is individuality, because you're not going to write a great American novel being a conformist. You know, you are the individual with the the foresight and the wisdom to see what needs to be critiqued. Well, then we get to our last part of the term, which is novel. And that it's, I think some people would think, well, that's something that's not at all uh, in, in any way controversial. But of course, there's a lot of discussion what makes a novel. I think it's always surprising to people to realize that of all literary fields, other than I guess the screenplay, this would be the newest genre. And it's only a few hundred years old. One of the first questions we have to ask, and DeForest brings this up, is why why isn't there the great American poem? And the simple reality is, is the novel was the form, uh, the dominant form. It still is, I think, in a lot of ways, even though novel readers, the audience for that has shrunk considerably. But if you look back at the history of early American literature, there were there were many poets that tried to write the great national epic in poetic form, totally derivative of the British tradition, which was part of the reason they were absolutely unsuccessful. Exactly. Part of the fun of teaching early American literature is to introduce students to those very labored poetic epics in which Washington is referred to as, you know, the first Columbus uh, or something like that. And they're just basically saying, why aren't they writing about George Washington? (laughs) Why are they having to refer to him as Columbus? So there's a prejudice against poetry that comes in by the 1850s that says, you know, it's a great art form, but it is not the democratic art form because it is so associated with high art. And that's something I think people didn't quite understand. One of the reasons why women authors who were novelists were able to rise to such prominence in Britain is because over over there in, in, in the United States, which always picked up whatever was big in Britain a decade or two later, the novel was seen as, as low art and not significant. So it was okay for women writers to engage in it. And so Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters all rise to prominence in a time and place where those were considered unworthy of great importance in the way that the poetry of a, a Lord Byron or a Shelley were considered significantly important. And yet, of course, in an American lit, we have what they're doing and what Dickens is doing, kind of all adding fuel to the fire so that you're right, in, a, in American literature, the novel is really, I believe, from that point to this very day where the American literary canon does make its mark as opposed to, well, when you look in the 20th century, it's hard to argue with the quality of the American novel, but are we as good at writing plays and drama as the British or people from other world cultures? I don't think so. And in poetry, I guess you'd say it's anyone's game. There's so many great poets from so many traditions, but the novel is one that can really hold its head up as having made some yeah. uh, you know, significant achievements and gains over the last 120 years. We're really talking about two kind of parallel issues. One is the, the, the style of the language. And I think what ends up happening with great American novels is, is writers find ways of aspiring to poetry and prose. And, and many of these novels that we're going to be talking about 
There are either sections or chapters that are effectively prose poems. They break out of oh, absolutely. Real, the conventions of realistic narratives and, and, you know, go for the rapturous or the, you know, whatever type of poetry they're going for. So style is very important in terms of being innovative. But again, you mentioned Dickens, and I think the novel became the preferred form because it had the narrative capacity, the, just the space to seem comparable, to seem commensurate, to use a Fitzgerald world, one of my favorite Fitzgerald worlds, the novel had right. the space to be commensurate with the continent itself. So I think the, the novel, much to the detriment of theater, I mean, imagine being Arthur Miller or Tennessee Williams, and you are not a candidate for the great American novel by virtue of the fact that you are writing in a different genre. William Carlos Williams, the poet, wrote a novel called Great American Novel in which he, you know, takes a Ginsu knife to the <laughs> very concept. And I've always thought that part of the reason that he did that was because he felt like the novel excluded poetry. I guess you could, one thing we'd say to Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller, yeah, you guys made a whole lot more money from Hollywood than these other guys mostly did. <laughs> other people mostly did. That's true. So as we move on into our individual episodes, we're going to debate this, the, those three concepts. But you also, there's also even more specific criteria. So Scott, I was going to ask you to kind of lay out some issues or themes that you see as being sort of the, the defining parameters by which we expect things out of the great American novel. So I guess the first criterion very much picks up on what we just discussed, which is broadly defined, you know, is the book by an American. And so, again, as we just discussed, are the scope and depth of sufficient size and gravity uh, that we would say it, it does qualify for great. And we'll also debate is the aesthetic value, is, this, is it a significant artistic accomplishment that helps us make, you know, that decision that it does qualify as great. Is the novel about American themes? Is it confronting problems with the country, celebrating the victories of the country, if there are any of those? Kirk has pointed out that's very rare that you would ever see that in these novels. But is it essentially a novel about what it means to be American in some small way or another? And the final and perhaps most unfair criterion might be its durability. So this is one where We've got a pretty good idea that The Scarlet Letter or Moby Dick um, will stick around because it's here we are 171 years later and, and people are still reading these books. They're still in the bookstores. On the other hand, are things written in the last 10 or 15 years still going to be around in 150 years? And that's part of one of the questions we'll try to answer as well. The main point we would end up emphasizing is it's not an either or, it's an and both. Yes. As we talk about this idea of the particular in the universal or the timeless versus the historical. Reading is a human act and talking about literature, professing literature is a human act. And so we are at once bound to our own period of time, but yet we're also engaging with, again, a long, a, a long arch of time, a long bend of time. And, and so there's no easy answers to these. And uh, right. I, I guess I would just begin wrapping this up with a question to you about where do you come down in terms of as a scholar or as a teacher, do you find yourself right in the middle 
of the universal or the particular, or do you find yourself able to move back and forth, or do you find yourself one side or the other? I think I find myself somewhat in the middle, where I I do think there are some works that are, I feel if you could, if there's any possibility in art to ever draw up objective criteria are going to meet most people's checkboxes. But at the same time, I do think there are works that are about particular people, particular places, particular times that are worthy of study and need us to pay attention to and understand. You know, if this democratic experiment, as Europeans always refer to the United States, is going to succeed then it, it can't only be about us approaching differences with tolerance. It also has to be us approaching them with interest and with welcoming natures. And so I think we need to see them kind of from both ends of this of the spectrum at the same time. I try to stay in that middle. I think I probably err a little to the left of the historical society, side in that I am fascinated by how differently works of art are read in different periods of time. And that becomes kind of... Right the fun of figuring out what, you know, how does JFK's Ernest Hemingway differ from Richard Nixon? Ah. Almost a parlor game in a lot of ways. But I also find that as you teach, you do have to give an aspirational sense of what are the higher values that we're aspiring toward. And again, that means if I'm teaching Uncle Tom's Cabin, obviously I'm teaching it as a document on the right side of the Civil War, but I'm teaching it for the very idea that it critiques a pretty humongous blind spot in all of our history about, about race relations. I struggle sometimes to remind myself I need to do both, but I find that teaching really kind of motivates the more aspirational quality. So a lot of contemporary writers are almost embarrassed by the term great American novel, and they'll refer to it as a joke. Oh, I'm home working on my GAN. I'm trying to create the great American novel here in my spare time or writing it into Zoom chat during other meetings or whatever it is they're doing. Why do you think they are embarrassed by it? Is it because they're embarrassed by aspiration, by ambition? or I do think that in the past 40, 45, maybe 50 years, that there is a idea that if you aspire to write literature with a capital L, unless you're someone like Toni Morrison, who is representing access to public intellectual space that for most, honestly, for most younger white writers, it seems pretentious. And I think it kind of alienates them from maybe who they want their audience to be. I always think of a great example, a book that I love, but I think is very flawed by a guy named Thomas Sanchez written in the late 80s about Key West, using Key West as a metaphor for the American experience at that moment. And a few years ago, I was doing research on that book, and I came across a reference by another writer who was being published by Knopf at the time. And he tells the story of walking up and down the aisles of the editor's offices there and overhearing Sanchez and his and his editor talk about how this was a great American novel. And this author almost taking pleasure in the fact that the book was not the commercial success it was aimed toward, but was more importantly, not the critical success it was aimed for. And it's almost, so it's almost like an Icarus thing. Nobody wants to be the guy that his ambition takes him, his or her ambition takes him too close to the sun and they totally crash out. We don't want to be the small figure way off in the distance and landscape at the fall of Icarus. Right. You know, the, bring back William Carlos Williams. 
So you mentioned earlier on the the dream of the great American novel by Lawrence Boyle. Can you tell us a little more about what he's up to in that book as we move towards closure? It's a great book. It's a long book. It's, you know, if you're going to write a book about the great American novel, it's not going to be short. But I think it I think it accomplishes for us a lot of what we're trying to do, which is to talk about the dialectic of the universal and the particular, because he talks about the way some of these qualities that we think of as being inherent to a great American novel, scope, ambition, he breaks them down into different scripts. And he basically goes through and, you know, he gives us on the one hand a history of the term, bringing up many of the parodies, many of the discounts, which by the way, started almost immediately. There is something of a hype aspect to calling something a great American novel. And I think that's another reason that people- It's a marketing decision. Right, it, they will discount the term before they ever defend it. It's almost like a, you know, a disclaimer. I don't really believe this, but that disclaimer becomes an excuse for your entry point into talking about it. I wish more writers tried the great American novel, to be perfectly honest. I think literature ceded a lot of public space to other art forms. Uh, in its own sense of modesty. We seem to be going through a contraction, don't we? But yeah. I don't know if it's because the publishing is controlled by so few giant corporations and smaller presses have a harder time competing, or if it's because people are just wanting to buy whatever this year's Harry Potter is. I'm not really sure why, but we seem to have gone through the last 20 years or so of contraction. And- well, it reflects the declining literacy rates, but it also reflects the rise of other more popular forms. Certainly popular music has taken over the aspirations for what used to be the great American novel. But even that now is itself in a period of contraction. A lot of it has to do with these formats. Again, what is the the format in which you are consuming this art? But I also think it, again, reflects the idea that we can't speak of a single American representative experience, that uh, we are such a checkerboard that to to even step out and make a claim is to open oneself up to charges as if you've excluded somebody else. So with that in mind, one of the segments we'll be getting to at the end of our episodes is something we're going to call Cannon Fodder. And these are books that Kirk and I have read, or maybe other people who contact us have read, that think we think, they think, are worthy of being included in the canon, but are not really being promoted as such at this time. And if, and for the purposes of this podcast, books we think are worthy of the title Great American Novel, even with all its problems of definition and controversies of form, as we've discussed. So we're going to wrap up this first introductory episode discussion, announcing what's the first GAN that we are going to take on. And Scott, you want to tell us that? Well, up first is probably the book that most people most of the time associate with this title. And also in in the part of us that are teachers and trying to provide a little bit of a public service to one that most people have probably had the most difficulty finishing. And that would be Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick. So we'll be talking not only about what qualities that have been held up in it, that give it that title, but also how to read it 
without being intimidated by the blubber and the bulk, <laughs> but also talking about the history of it because it does dramatize the idea and Buell speaks of this about delayed ascendancy. The idea that a work of genius, and it's very much a Melville concept, he almost willed it into being for himself that a genius is not recognized in his own time. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on this inaugural podcast and we hope to see you soon. Thank you.